are now listening to The Sound of Sanity, Beyond the Wardrobe Edition. This is a special series of episodes wherein Nathan and Ben journey through the enchanted world of children's Children's fantasy fantasy literature. literature. What will this journey bring? You'll have to come with us to find out. going to be a painful journey. (laughs) No, it's not going to be a painful journey. We're talking about the Wizard of Oz. Ladies and germs, we're following the yellow brick road all the way to, man, my brain wanted to say Roald Dahl's Immortal Masterpiece. But of course I meant, is it L. Frank Baum or Frank L. Baum? L. Frank Baum. L. Frank Baum's Immortal Masterpiece. He's the bomb. A this is Lyman. Lyman Frank Bomb. Lyman Frank Bomb. Ben, do you think... Well, I suppose I should introduce this. I, I am, do. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> All right. I'm glad we've established that. It's good to have a thoughtful person on this podcast. Do you... Th- no, I, st- I need to introduce us before I ask any okay. questions. Mm-hmm. I'm Nathan. That's Ben. We do Sound of Sanity together. Now... We are talking, as you heard at the top, through some great children's literature, and today we come to The Wizard of Oz. D- uh, my question is... The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. I was wondering about that because... I, it, it is sometimes published as The Wizard of Oz, yeah, but originally is The Wonderful The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. He has a whiz, if ever a whiz there was. Do people know this book? Everybody knows the MGM movie. Everybody knows the iconography of the MGM movie. Everybody mm-hmm. knows the Elton John song, <clears throat> Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Everybody probably knows the Wicked Witch and Wicked. And like, there's all kinds of stuff that people very much know when it comes to the title, The Wizard yes. of Oz. But for a lot of people, for me, certainly in most of my life, it was drawn from the MGM movie, even though I knew that there was a book series and stuff. I really didn't know anything much beyond that and beyond Return to Oz, which we've talked about before. But do you get the sense that people at large know anything about this series beyond what they know from <clears throat> Metro Golden Mayor? No, not at all. <clears throat> I don't believe so. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, that's my question. That was my first question. Like, have, has this book series even really survived in the popular consciousness i wonder if you went to barnes and noble like right now the one that we have in town whether you would find these books like you would yeah yeah you would i mean you can find sets of them some people do read them and like to read the whole series i think but i just don't know that by and large people have read the wizard of oz right like you're saying they've seen the movie right which is a good bit different is as we'll talk about yeah well Let's get going. Let's talk about, I suppose, what should we talk about first? Let's talk about the baggage that we both bring to this bad boy. I'm looking for my sound effect that will help me bridge the gap. Where is it? I guess I've got these chimes. All right. We're talking about our baggage. What baggage do you bring to The Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum? I saw the movie as a kid. Mm-hmm. And after that, at some point in elementary school, I can remember, I definitely know that by fourth grade, I had read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz because I remember I gave it to a friend in fourth grade as a birthday present, and he was skeptical. I remember that, but later he came back and he was like, you were right, this book was awesome. (laughs) Nice. So I, yeah, I felt pretty gratified because to me, it was like, oh, this is a really fun adventure book. And I wouldn't have known that it would be from the movie. Because the movie, obviously, it is. it has the outlines of an adventure and stuff like that. But it doesn't feel... It's more about singing and dancing than adventure, really. Mm-hmm. But the book is a lot less about singing. In fact, there is there is a little bit of singing. But there's not. And there's a little bit of dancing. But it's not the focus. The focus is more like you run into the next fairy tale set of circumstances, difficulties, or strange and malevolent creatures. And uh, the Tin Woodsman chops off their heads. Right. I think that basically summarizes what happens in the book. Yeah. (laughs) 
Great book. Yeah. <laughs> Five stars. Well, Thanks for stuff listening. happens beside that. It's a very sweet-natured little book. Mm-hmm. And it had a, a, the fairy tale energy, that an episodic fairy tale energy and storytelling style that I really liked as a little boy. Mm-hmm. And I read a lot of the Oz series as a result. And I my library didn't have at least a couple of the Bomb books. And I didn't read outside the Bomb series. And we'll talk in a little bit maybe about just how deep the rabbit hole goes into, into Oz. <laughs> how big, how many Oz books right. there are. It's a lot. But yeah, so I read it, liked it, and I it was always on my radar as a fun world to visit or revisit. And then at some point, I lost touch with Oz, Nathan. Mm. I lost touch with Oz. You know, which is kind of yeah. a metaphor yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> something. I don't know. That I, <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I hadn't returned to this book for I'm sure twenty five years or something like that. Twenty years. I don't know. A long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there you go. My baggage is I grew up with the MGM movie. I, unlike you, I really liked the MGM movie. I don't know why exactly. It's not. Hey, really... and, and maybe I did too. I feel like I'm probably overdoing it, and I don't think I dislike the MGM movie. I just think you maybe discovered the real Oz. Something like that. That was more up my alley, and maybe it was overexposure. Like a lot of those musicals, you're shown a lot as kids, mm-hmm. especially for boys. Maybe for girls too. But it's like you see Sound of Music. The first five times, you're like, this is great. The next five times, same with Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. same with Wonderful Wizard of Oz. They just got a little over saturated. Yeah. And then sometimes you know. come back to them as an adult and you're like, this is actually genius. Sometimes you don't. And you just remember right. it as that thing that you had to watch a million times. It yeah, yeah. depends. So, so Sorry to interrupt. Sometimes you come back and it's Rex Harrison's Dr. Doolittle and it doesn't hold up at all. It wasn't uh, ever any good to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> I like to walk with the animals, talk with the animals, squeak and squawk and squawk with the animals. Anyway, um, yeah, I grew up with the MGM movie. We watched it a lot. I can remember my dad really laughing at the Cowardly Lion. You know, it's one of those kind of family movies, as I'm sure it is for lots of people. Hmm. And it's a good movie. You know, I've watched it as an adult and it does hold up and it is a great sort of time capsule of the comedy style and the musical style and the everything that these really talented show people could do at the time it is not a great fairy tale or fantasy movie in and of itself it is more like wow this guy playing the scarecrow i don't remember what his name is he can really sing and dance and they really know how to write witty lyrics and technicolor sure is pretty it's just more of a movie movie Mm -hmm. than it is a fantasy movie i think as a kid, I maybe resented Oz stuff a little bit, not because of the MGM movie. I don't remember ever having a bad feeling about that, but I did have a bad feeling about the sort of 90s and 2000s repackaging of not so much the bomb books as the MGM stuff done often by people who don't actually work for MGM and don't have the rights and they don't then go back to the bomb book, but or maybe they do, I don't know, but there's like a sci-fi original series set in the land of Oz. There's that terrible James Franco, Sam Raimi, Oz movie. Which I never saw. There's things like Wicked. People, I don't know if it's like the gay community. I don't know who it is that feels like, I mean, I can understand The Wizard of Oz really imprinting on people, the movie, and making a strong impact. But as a kind of franchise to be exploited, as ground to go back and make more stuff and make things commenting on it and kind of do the, do your postmodern take or do your, the witch was the good guy take or do your, like, I never really liked or understood it as that. Now, having read this first book, I would be very behind someone doing more stuff mm-hmm. in the bombiverse. Right. But that's not what they do. That's never what they do. It's always more or less in the MGM averse or at the very least MGM like the Franco movie, I actually think does take some stuff from this book, like the China doll people and stuff like that. But the MGM casts such a shadow that you just, you can't escape it. It's a little bit like Bela Lugosi's Dracula or something like that. You don't have to say, I want to drink your blood, but you can do something different. But one way or another, you're always responding to it when you play Dracula. You can never really escape it. You're either doing something that is like it or you're intentionally doing something that's different from it. But the one thing you're not doing is pretending like it doesn't exist. And what I'd like to see somebody do with 
this franchise is just pretend like the MGM movie doesn't exist and just do something based on this book and the other books in the series. Maybe that would be fun. And they're all in public domain, so I don't know why somebody hasn't just already done it. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me. Certainly, there have been a lot of stabs at it, a lot of terrible like TV movies and things like that. And yeah. Some bad animated stuff, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's weird about it is that MGM has not exactly directly capitalized on it. I mean, MGM doesn't really exist in the same form, but there are people, I think it's probably Warner Brothers now, that own the rights to the Judy Garland movie, and... What they haven't done, well, they, while there's been lots of sequels and knockoffs and redos and postmodern, somebody, they haven't just gone directly back to that universe either. Mm-hmm. You get this kind of weird half-breed thing where it's maybe a little bit of Bomb's books, it's a little bit of the MGM movie, and they even return to Oz, a movie that you and I both have great affection for. They bought the rights to the Ruby Slippers from Metro so that they could do the Ruby Slippers instead of the silver shoes or whatever it actually mm-hmm. is and yeah. would have been in the book. Um, <coughs> silver. It's like you've got to somehow tip your hat to MGM. And, I, and maybe it's true. Maybe if I was making an Oz movie, I'd be like, oh, man, actually, this MGM thing is such a monolith and it's so well-known. Like, there's just no way to avoid dealing with it. Maybe that's just the facts of the case and that's okay mm-hmm. and I can have sympathy for that. My larger point is I have never enjoyed anything Oz-related beyond the MGM movie and the and Return to Oz, the movie that we talked about before, talked about in the lead up to this podcast. Weird movie from the eighties when Disney was hadn't quite found its footing while Disney was dead. The corporation was trying to figure out what they were gonna be and how they were gonna make movies for a modern audience. You were getting weird things like Oliver Company and Black mm-hmm. Cauldron and stuff in the they then really quite found their footing in terms of the modern fairy tale of it all, the Disney Renaissance of it all. So they're just trying weird stuff, kind of grasping for relevance. And one thing that they did during their grasp for for relevance was try to sort of adapt darker YA material. And so you got Something Wicked This Way Comes, a a weird kind of dark Bradbury adaptation that doesn't do the novel justice, but it's kind of interesting that Disney tried. You got Return to Oz. You got a couple other things like that. And mm, Return to Oz is far and away the most successful. But even it yep. kind of has this weird pall of like, well, we kind of want to be dark or we think that's what people mm-hmm. want. We're going to have Dorothy be <laughs> getting shock treatment at the beginning. Yeah, which is actually not an Oz thing. Right. Yeah. Like, it, that, that's, that doesn't. Bomb, bomb would not have approved. Right. Yeah. Even, even though the movie successfully captures the spirit of Oz in most other ways. Yeah. But it just kind of starts on a, on a dour note. And interestingly, I'd say this book starts a little bit on a dour note, too, in that it doesn't, the depression, I guess it's not strictly the depression that he's writing about, I'm bringing, I'm importing that from the MGM movie, but the hard scrabble life of Dorothy is not described pleasantly, like you're not, you're not, it actually creates kind of a weird effect in the book, because I'm not personally all that invested in her getting back to it, even though she's very invested in getting back to it. It's like, actually, Dorothy, it seems like it's much more fun. To live in Oz. Live in Oz. And you, we unlike the MGM movie, we haven't really done anything to establish much affection between you. We haven't said that there's none, but we also just haven't done much to establish anti-M as, like, why do we have to get back to... But we'll have plenty of time to talk about the book. My larger point is that is my baggage with Oz. I like the MGM movie. Going into this, I liked the MGM movie. I liked the film Return to Oz. I hated everything else. Oz related or Oz adjacent or using the name mm-hmm. kind of annoyed like that Gregory Maguire guy the guy that wrote Wicked he's always annoyed me just that that uh-huh. whole kind of hipster postmodern. what's it like from the villain's perspective you know what if the yeah. big bad wolf was the good guy <laughs> instead of the three little pigs what would, you know everybody has a point of view maybe there's probably been some good things made in that vein I've never actually seen Wicked maybe it's great but I just kind of am annoyed with that whole conceit this whole sort of self-congratulatory conceit of so yeah (laughs) you know that's not actually the button that i meant to push what but (laughs) that's perfect that will usher us into context yeah i got some context context yeah talk about l frank bomb for a minute you can't have an explosive podcast without a bomb in it. <laughs> All right. It's a little bit of improv, folks. <laughs> hey. Oh, sorry. I meant... 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what are all these buttons? I, I've never been on this page of buttons. This is a cool page of buttons. That's terrible. Uh, right. I know that button. Yeah, I think I have used that button okay. before. Okay, you've right. definitely used it before. Oh, L. Frank Baum. He was a sickly child who liked to daydream, which uh, reminds me of another author we just talked about, children's author Robert C. O'Brien. Yes. Sickly child who likes to daydream. I guess that is a type mm-hmm. for your fantasy authors or maybe your authors in general. He was born uh, in 1856, five years before the start of the Civil War. His dad was a very successful entrepreneur who worked in a number of fields, real estate and oil being among them. And he, Frank, I think, was like a hard worker and entrepreneurial and interested in a lot of things. And as, as his life goes along, he gets into a lot of stuff. And his dad is happy to help try to finance some things or get him into things, and he just tries things. So at age 17, it's stamp collecting. He publishes like his own stamp journal and starts a stamp dealership. At age 20, it's poultry breeding, which Wait, was, so the stamp thing didn't pull, pan out? Yeah, it never got the stamp of approval from <laughs> <laughs> the public. Yeah, I think that was just kind of like me and my brother, we're going to do this fun thing sort of thing. But at age 20... Poultry breeding was a national craze. There's a book about this called Hen Fever and about how this starts with, I think it's Queen Victoria, if I'm remembering right. And people just got obsessed with like exotic chickens and breeding them. And <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. It's just like being obsessed with beanie babies or Pokemon. You want to collect them all. You want the hottest new chicken breed and you want more and you want to display them and you want to geek out about them. I read that the really big hen fever bubble had kind of burst by the time Bomb came on the scene, but mm. whatever the timing was, there must have been plenty left because he was seriously into it. He even wrote a book on the breeding of the Hamburg chicken. All right. So you're saying that this wasn't a feather-brained scheme? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was excellent. It was excellent. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um So his big adult obsession, though, which never left him, was for the theater. Loved to act, loved to produce, loved to write plays. And he did that stuff. He didn't have a lot of financial or critical success with it at first. Once we get to Oz, we do see some success, which we'll get to. But he wrote this play with songs, a kind of proto-musical called The Maid of Aaron, which did okay. I think you could probably still find a script for The Maid of Aaron around. (laughs) performed it at a theater that his his dad had built for him. Now, this theater later burned down after catching fire while he was away during a performance of a parlor drama that Baum had written called Matches. (laughs) 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 You you can't make this up. And not many copies of his scripts survived because so many only copies of scripts were lost in that fire. So that's kind of funny. Baum is not really a good businessman, but thankfully he's going to marry someone who's better with finances. Um, in terms of like the biggest financial success of any property he was involved with, he was going to die 15 years before the massively successful MGM Wizard of Oz in 1939. Uh, the one that we all know and might love. So anyway, speaking of which, marriage. Young Baum, before he begins to write Oz books, it's 1882, he gets married to a woman named Maud Gage, who was the daughter of a famous suffragette and feminist and anti-Christian a free thinker activist named Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She's mm. an abolitionist too, a campaigner for Native American rights. Did I already say abolitionist? I don't know. Have you? I said she's free thinking, but specifically there is a thing. I didn't realize that there was an actual thing called free thought, hmm. a movement. She was a promoter of free thought. Have you ever heard of that? Well, I know it's an epistemological viewpoint that holds that beliefs should not be formed on the basis of authority, tradition, revelation, or dogma, and that beliefs should instead be reached by other methods such as logic, reason, and empirical observation. Nathan, you've really done your homework. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So you should be autonomous, only the facts, no cognitive bias, question everything except don't question, of course, free thought, except the authority of free thought without question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How dare you question free thought? Bow to free thought. So anyway, this lady is that. She's anti-Christian. And if you've ever heard of the Matilda effect, which I had not, it's named after her. It is the name of the tendency to deny credit to women for their scientific achievements. 
So bomb bought into all this mm. stuff. This is um, his wife's this is mother. His, yeah, this is his mother-in-law. He was a big fan of hers. She came to really like him after not being happy at first that her daughter was going to get involved with some floofy theater guy. Mm-hmm. And Did he show her the stamp book? I don't know. He, probably, that, he might have gotten her that stamp of approval. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he might have made her stamp her foot. Yes, she'd say, tell her daughter to stick around. Oh, <laughs> oh only if... Uh... Oh, never mind. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Baum, I think, bought into all this stuff. Baum was a feminist. Baum was... He was born a Methodist, but eventually he gets to... And I think this is through his mother-in-law. He gets into theosophy. And you may not know what theosophy is, listener. You may have heard the term, but there was, to start with, a a Christian theosophy that sprang up in the wake of the Reformation, like Lutheranism and stuff. It is a kind of mysticism, a kind of Gnosticism. Like, you want direct, unmediated knowledge of divine things, and your, your goal is to put yourself into that disposition or that frame of mind where you can receive these sort of direct vibes or communication from God. And so, like all mysticism, it's it's pitted against Scripture, essentially. Scripture becomes something secondary, something ancillary. What a great word. And uh, this, but this was not Christian theosophy we're talking about, even. This is a theosophy, the pagan theosophy that starts later. And this stuff is more like Eastern. Mm-hmm. We're talking, it incorporates mm, reincarnation and karma and a lot of Eastern and Buddhist and Hindu doctrines. And it's this spiritualizing movement that's becoming more and more popular. And Matilda Jocelyn Gage is big into it. And Baum gets into it too. He doesn't, there's things he doesn't accept. Like he doesn't accept the transmigration of the soul from animals to humans and back again, right? Which is a Hindu thing. But he does accept, he comes to accept the idea that he and Maud have, they've been together and Many past lives. And you know, mm. it's just stupid. Sentimental hogwash. Sentimental hogwash. And so he always retains a belief in some kind of creator or God figure that is the kind of cozy creator God figure he wanted. Yeah, people should maybe listen if they want to our an episode earlier, episode of this podcast. I don't remember what it was called, but we did one on mm-hmm. occult. I just read a, in a book, on, book yeah. on sort of 19th century and 20th century occultism. I don't remember whether we specifically talked about theosophy. Probably not. Uh, I don't think but, so. But it's very much in the realm of the kind of esoteric, Eastern-influenced occult religions that were rising up in the wake of the Second Great Awakening. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's an interesting rabbit hole. It is important in the history of America. And it is a big thing to, to bomb and his wife. And Kind of proto. Uh, this isn't exactly... This is a gross simplification, but if you want to understand it as proto-New Age or the thing that came before mm-hmm. New Age, New Age is like its dopey little brother or something mm-hmm. like that. It's a slightly more rigorous and mm-hmm. thoughtful version of what would be diluted later into, into the new corny age new, and, new Age kind okay. of crap, yeah. Right, right. Well, and the other thing, I mean, the thing that you can, you can talk about the Oz books in terms of there's sort of... Mm, gauzy religious undertones mm-hmm. and moral undertones, and we'll get to those. I don't really want to just jump ahead to the books themselves yet, but right. you can also talk about them in terms of feminism or things that are certainly not out of line with feminism. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too. His mother-in-law had a big effect on him. His wife was her daughter, and Frank was only too happy to be surrounded with strong women who were rather bossy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, our old buddy Lyman is married. He keeps trying to build new things. This is just what he does. Starts this kind of general store, but he extends too much credit to the patrons and it folds. He becomes a newspaper editor of a newspaper in town. I'm trying to remember where he is now at this point. South Dakota, maybe. The newspaper folds. After that, he takes three jobs at once. He becomes a reporter. He starts a magazine and he works as a traveling salesman. This guy is just like sort of nonstop. He's not good at business, but you do have to admire his pluck. Mm-hmm. Like it just won't stop kind of following in the footsteps of his dad. And then he writes his first children's book, and this is where he begins to get some real success and traction. Mother Goose in Prose is what it's called. It's stories based on the nursery rhymes. It has some success. And then he writes another, and this time he writes it with an editorial political cartoonist named William Denslow, W.W. W. Denslow. This one's called Father Goose his book. 
it's a collection of silly verses. It's not considered to be that great now, but what it is, is it's, it's equal parts Denslow and Baum. Like, the illustrations are funny. Mm-hmm. They're, Denslow is a good comedian with his illustrations, and the layout of the book is very dynamic and fun. And so it, it's a sort of visual treat, even if the rhymes are they're just okay. Right. It was the best-selling children's book of 1899. So financial success, ah, oh, Baum quits at least one of those jobs. <laughs> it, he's like, yes, this is what I'm doing. Next year, he and Denslow worked together to publish The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And it was the best-selling children's book for two years straight. So people love it. Instant hit. Denslow's art, if you should go look at it, it's, it is, it's funny. It's cool. It's comical. It's got Dorothy with brown braids. If you, see her, if you see her in Return to Oz, that's who she's modeled off of. That's the original Dorothy. So, Oh, yeah. I've seen this guy's art before. Yeah, it's great. He's it, great. It's yeah. really funny. Reminds me a little bit of, this maybe won't help people, but it reminds uh-huh. me a little bit of the comic stylings of the guy that did Little Nemo in Slumberland. Or oh, yeah. If you've seen some of those early, really elaborate Sunday comics, the, yeah. the, the early 20th century, it's, it's, that's the closest analog I can think Are of. You, this is Denslow you're yeah, looking at? Okay. Denzel, yeah, Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd say, in my memory at least, Little Nemo's a little more on the Art Deco side. Yes, for sure. But that will bring us back. Well, in a second, we'll talk about the next illustrator who is more sort of Art Deco, sort of, I don't have the other words for him, but a little different. So Denslow and Baum are collaborating. Denslow is this hard-drinking, acerbic kind of guy, I think, kind of self-destructive. But he and Baum, right away, they begin to collaborate on a stage musical adaptation. So no relation to the famous movie, but Wizard of Oz. And it is, it's crazy successful. It's on Broadway from 1902 through 1903, and then it tours the country through 1911. It's a long-running mm. thing. Denslow fights with Baum over royalties. Mm. And that's bad enough that Baum is like, I'm done working with you. And so from then on, the Oz books have a different illustrator, and this is who you're more likely to know and have seen. There's a guy, it's an artist named John R. Neal. Neal's art is it's awesome. Like I said, it's more art deco, it's more painterly, it's more sort of traditional fantasy. It's less comical, which irritates Baum sometimes. So Baum gets annoyed by that because Baum liked Denslow's comic sensibilities. But it's great art. I just, I kind of love it. So you got two awesome artists, but book two, you're done with Denslow. The Marvelous Land of Oz, that's book two. And then that book and the third one, Ozma of Oz, are what get combined to make the movie Return to Oz, which we've been talking about, which is a much... I just want to say sort of Aussier movie mm-hmm. than the, you know, the 1939 MGM Wizard of Oz. Right. But it, because it just has more of the weirdness and the humor and the adventure. So, Nathan, I foreshadowed this earlier. Mm. I adumbrated it. Can I use that word that way? Absolutely. What, what an awesome word. Can you guess how many Oz books there are? Just give me a guess. Is it a trick question? It's a really unfair question. The question that just stinks. How many Oz books there are? Yeah. I think we need to define our terms here. <laughs> <laughs> Curses. <laughs> You've, you outfoxed me. So, yeah, you have to decide what counts as an Oz book. That's the problem. So are we only talking about the ones written by Baum himself? Are we talking about the ones authorized by his publishers and written by other people after his death? Are we talking about the ones that were not authorized by his publishers? but were written by some of the same authors whose books they did authorize and seem to kind of follow canon. Are we talking about just the Oz books that are recognized as official canon by the Bomb Trust? Are we talking about Wicked? Right. It's stuff like that. Just spinoffs. Right. Yeah, depending on how you answer the question, you can come up with anywhere from 14 to, I have no idea how many books, let's say 100. I don't really, I'm sure that's not accurate. It's probably, it might be more. 14 is how many Bomb wrote. Okay. So after him, there's a lady named Ruth Plumley Thompson. I don't remember what her relation to him was, but she wrote 21, which is crazy. And then, and John Neal continues to illustrate. And then at the end of her run, John Neal, the illustrator, writes three. Hmm. And then another couple of ladies each write one, and that gets us to 40, which the famous 40, they're called. I've only read the ones by Baum. Like I said, I think there were a couple not at my library. You'd never ventured outside of Baum. I haven't, and I'm curious to. I read enough to know that the style is very different. And once you get to John Neal, 
Like he's just the wackiness. He's the wackiness. Like right. he's gonna go. He's gonna go the zaniest of anyone. Yeah, I'm interested. So, and there's tons of Oz books after that. There is a more recent run by Sherwood Smith, who's the children's author of two, three, maybe four Oz books that I've never read that were authorized by the Baum estate or the Baum trust. Hmm. Um, or maybe even not requisitioned. What's that word? Commissioned. There we go. So, but anyway, let's go back to just after the release of the first best-selling Oz book. L. Frank Baum doesn't have an intention of writing more. He does want to make plays and musicals out of stuff. He loves that. And at some point, he even plans to make a theme mark, but that does not happen. But he's also, he's got, he's just, this guy, kind of like his business ventures, he's just like, this idea. Right. He just has tons more ideas for fantasy worlds. So he's already working on a book just after Oz comes out called Dot and Tot of Maryland. I don't exactly know how it did, but it certainly didn't do as well as Oz. And you can go read about it. Oz was a cash cow. <clears throat> and so Baum was like, well, I mean, Baum adapts this stage play. And then he tries another stage play called the uh, musical thing called the, the Woggle Bug. Mm. And that becomes that it's a total failure. I don't, it's <laughs> bad for him financially. And, but it does become the basis for the story of the next Oz book. <clears throat> and Baum ends up keep, just keeping on with Oz. He's always intending to stop. In fact, I think it's book six where he makes this play in the book. Like, oh, now that this has happened, the land of Oz is closed forevermore to the outside world and no one will ever enter again. But that doesn't work because <laughs> children just deluge him with letters throughout his life. They're like, Dorothy could have this adventure with this person and when will you write more Oz books? And he's always needing the money because mm-hmm. he's always spending his money on expensive plays. And so, stuff. so maybe this is a question that a gentleman wouldn't ask, but how many Oz books did he care about? I don't know. What I do know, what I do know is that this guy, whatever else you want to say, he just has ideas constantly. Right. So I don't think I've ever read an Oz book. There are varying levels of quality. And the first book is not the highest quality of the Oz books. Right. But whatever else you want to say, there's no shortage of invention. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting quality for a children's fantasy author. It's a pretty great one. Yeah. He's just very generous. Like, oh, here's here's another world. Oh, here's another one. I just have a few pages to fill. So here's another world. Here's another race. Here's a new character. He's just like constantly doing that. That's kind of fun. Especially when you're the right age for it. Right. So, <clears throat> yeah. So Baum does have to, he goes bankrupt when he tries to finance this one Oz production. I think it's like Oz Radio Play or something. But it is a play that has a film playing plus live actors. Hmm. So it bankrupts him. Thankfully, he'd already signed over most of his assets to his wife. So they never go bankrupt as a family because his wife... Anyway, he has the sense to kind of like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> his, his wife is more brass tacks than him. As Baum writes, he does write other fantasy books and other fantasy worlds, and some of these get a little traction, but he always comes back to Oz. And as he goes, he'll often end up connecting these other fantasy worlds to Oz. Like, I think the final map has Maryland out past the Deadly Desert or whatever it's mm-hmm. called, and it has these other worlds like Is and Ev. <laughs> and characters from those worlds will interpenetrate and have adventures in Oz. So he's just kind of just can't stop spitting out this stuff. Right. So he, and he sta- even starts, this is how he thought, he even starts the Oz Film Manufacturing Company in <laughs> 1914 and directs some Oz movies like His Majesty, The Scarecrow of Oz, which is a silent movie you can find on YouTube. It's very boring. It was not a successful company. And so Baum ends up playing along with Oz. He, I think he does it pretty good naturally. And he leaves behind this ongoing fantasy world in a way that I don't know another franchise that has done this. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's almost like you, you just, I haven't read the books to confirm this, but it's like, who has a sequel writer follow-up to write one and a half times the books you wrote? Right. You write 14, she writes 21. Mm-hmm. It's just like this world can accommodate anyone's imagination and anyone's writing. Well, Ben, obviously you've forgotten the boxcar children. I'm sorry, Nathan. <laughs> I know that's very dear to your heart. <laughs> it's because of your, your your childhood growing up in a boxcar. <laughs> right. well, <laughs> I think you need to get some therapy for that. all the mysteries I solved, come on, I contributed all right, all right, to society. Well, okay. <laughs> oh, my uh, goodness. There are other series like that. But Oz is, 
but maybe unique among anything that approaches a classic mm. of children's fantasy, leaving behind such a giant plastic world that everyone's like, I want to play in that world, right. and I can. So that's interesting. So maybe bef- this is maybe this is our proper lead-in for just talking about morality and themes in Oz, but I'll make a couple notes on that kind of thing yeah. and Baum's perspective on what he was doing. He was inspired by Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland in a couple of ways. And I think maybe just these two ways. But he, one, he liked having a little girl hero. He just thought children could identify with her. He liked that. Mm-hmm. Two, he was happy with Carol's principled lack of moral lessons, or at least you could say openly didactic right. moral lessons. He didn't think kids' books should have them. It, this book has all sorts of moral lessons, actually. But they're not, it's not preachy. Right. It's not like you get to the end and Dorothy has learned her one lesson or something. It's more like she just happens. There happen to be <clears throat> many pearls of wisdom dropped by many random characters as she goes. Right. <clears throat> Some of that maybe she takes to heart. But Oz clearly has some morality of its own. And <clears throat> I think if you keep reading them, if you, dear reader, you're like, man, this was fun. My kids liked it. I'm going to keep reading. You'll see the influence of free thought, which we talked about earlier, and feminism. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you may not even feel like any of that is toxic or like it's just evil. And I would say, yeah, it's not evil. It's just, it's annoying especially reading some of these things as an adult, you see it in all the good witches, the fact that like, there's all these women, they're all witches, and some are good and some are bad, but they're all rulers, and they're kind, the good ones are, oh, man, they're basically perfect. Mm -hmm. They're like Charles Dickens levels of syrup. Right. Linda, the good witch of the North, whatever her name is, she doesn't have a name yet, at least in this book. Right. They're just basically perfect ladies. Right. And sort of annoying. And that's uh, just a thing. I mean, you get Ozma is the character who will be introduced, who will be the Empress of Oz. I read that Baum's mother-in-law did all this research about the unjust persecution of witches. And you Mm -hmm. can easily see a feminist talking about her son-in-law with that and the son-in-law being like, yeah, you're right. My my fantasy series are going to have good witches to show the good power of women. Here's another thing. This is spoiler alert for about mm, 10 seconds here. This is an actual spoiler for one of the books in for the Return to Oz movie. Okay, tune out, quick. It, it, the only thing that can defeat the evil gnome king, a villain in Ozma of Oz or Return to Oz, is the eggs of Henrietta the Hen, which is it's not hard to see that as a symbol of feminine potency. Mm-hmm. It seems pretty obvious. It's not much of a stretch to buy that. Okay, spoilers done. I mean, I guess this is kind of spoilery, but I don't feel bad. The, the book, The Marvelous Land of Oz, the plot is this woman named Ginger <laughs> leads a coup to take over Oz from the men by using knitting needles as weapons, and she successfully subjugates the men, and they have to do the chores. But then Ozma comes in and restores order. Ozma believes in gender equality, so she she brings peace. Mm-hmm. So you get stuff like that, which you're like, eh, this is kind of funny and kind of annoying. In that, you're just going to get that if you're right. reading a bunch of Oz. You I guess can, compared to second and third and fourth wave fem- feminism, this brand feels a little quaint to me. It does at least. feel it's, it feels like, it feels pretty it's quaint. It's kind of cute. <laughs> it's kind of cute. Yeah. I don't think it's gonna harm your children. Right. I don't. I think it's stuff that you can discuss with them. I know that the this I meant to read a little more about, but I didn't. I know the Oz books caused controversy. Hmm. Parents were like, this is godless and we don't want our children to believe in some sort of weird godless world or a godless supernaturalism. So they've caused controversy at schools. And here's a quote from, so here's how Baum is regarded these days. For one thing, the Theosophical Society does own him. Right. They're like, yes, he's an important theosophist, and he wrote children's literature. We're very glad. So there's that. But there's a 2009 article in the Smithsonian Magazine called Frank Baum, the Man Behind the Curtain. Quote, with his skepticism toward God or men posing as gods, Baum affirmed the idea of human fallibility, but also the idea of human divinity. The wizard may be a huckster, a short bald man in Omaha born in Omaha, rather than an all-powerful being, but meek and mild Dorothy, also a mere mortal, has the power within herself to carry out her desires, unquote. I think that's a pretty dumb quote. But, yeah, that's bomb. Sure. Self-reliance, like, sort of anti-authoritarian, kind of, in a squiggly way. Although, all of his characters always become kings in this book, too. And Yeah, if this book was all that I had to go on, I don't know that I would assume feminist, any of that. Any of that? No, I don't think you would have to. But I think as you 
once you know that about bomb, it's hard not to see it. Yeah, and it's easy to backfill it even into this one. Yeah, just the, yeah. The general kind of matriarchal feel of everything. But that, that's right. And I don't think that this it doesn't make this book a bad book for kids. Right. In my opinion. But all that stuff is important to know. Sure. So anyway, so bomb bomb dies in what would that be? Fifteen years before the MGM movie, I can't do math. Nineteen twenty four. He died. His last words to his wife were something like, now we can cross the shifting sands. So an Oz reference. There you go. There you go. It wasn't, the monkeys are coming. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Okay. Does that that do it for context? That does it. I could provide a little bit of extra context. Just it's interesting to me that Baum is kind of situated in between what many people think of as the sort of golden ages, the different, the two golden ages of children's literature. He's kind of right in between sort of bridging them, almost like the desert itself. You've got like the early, like children's literature through the course of human history really hasn't been a thing. It became a profitable market with John Newberry, who we get the Newberry award from being like, Hey, maybe kids would actually enjoy something that we illustrated and made for them. And maybe that would actually be a better way to teach them than to either not give them any fiction of their own or to give them this kind of austere, puritanical, almost like horror stories about kids being naughty and then (laughs) receiving the most, (laughs) it does make me laugh, the most gruesome punishments. There's these kind of early morality plays and things in the 16th century and into the 17th century that are just ridiculous. But in the mm-hmm. in the 18th century, Newberry drawing a lot on the empiricist theories of somebody like John Locke is just like, hey, kids' minds are a blank slate, and they actually want to learn, and we should give them stuff that they enjoy, and that will actually be a better way to teach them. And so, for his time, his books are considered very entertaining. Now they actually see, feel pretty didactic compared to hmm. what we're used to. But he was actually the guy who was, for his day, getting us away from didacticism. And so that's kind of the mid 1700s, and then that sort of culminates with with Lewis Carroll in the 1800s, publishing one of the most popular of all children's books, and a book like you said that just avoids any kind of. Yeah, I mean, in its way. It's didactic. It has its satire and its morals and its little mm-hmm. digs at society. But for the kid who's reading it, there's, it's just a series of oddball adventures that Alice goes on without any kind of coherent meaning or message or anything like right. that. And that was obviously very influential. But these were some of the first people that were like, we can sell books to kids with illustrations and people will buy them. And A, Children are their own category. They're not just little adults who need the bad things whipped out of them. They're their own special category and a category that we as adults feel sentimental about and want to preserve the innocence of. That's mm-hmm. all in some ways. I'm wildly generalizing, but that's all in some ways an adventure, an invention yeah. of the Victorian era. So anyway, that, that's one golden, golden age of literature, which gets us through to the late 1800s. And then the other thing that people very much look back and consider a golden age of children's literature is the mid 20th century when you have people like Roald Dahl and C.S. Lewis and Dr. Seuss and like all the guys that we now remember Mm -hmm. and know. But L. Frank Baum sits kind of oddly in the middle of those two eras. Like he was kind of (laughs) carrying the torch in between. It's not that there wasn't a lot of good stuff done in his time as Mm -hmm. well, but he, it's weird. Kind of him. Milne is in there. J.M. Barry, the Peter Pan stuff is in there. But I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, that um, is interesting. All right. Any other context or anything worth saying before we move on? Well, I think I will read this one quote yeah. from Baum. I don't. I wonder when he said this. But he was commenting on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. He said, quote, It was pure inspiration. It came to me right out of the blue. I think that sometimes the great author had a message to get across, and he was to use the instrument at hand, unquote. Okay. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah, d- don't know what to say about that. I mean, that's, that's right. That's more like it. All right, folks, we're going to give our opinion on this book. Now, 
Ben, you've obviously read many Oz books, grew up with the Oz books. Mm-hmm. And, but you, had you gone back to them for a while? It's been a long time. Years, like de- decades? just At least a decade, maybe 15 years, maybe 20, probably 15. And what was it like reading The Wonderful Wizard of Oz for the first time again? I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's fun. It's very episodic. It feels, in a lot of ways, very arbitrary in terms of what happens next. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, that was perfectly fine with me. As an adult, it's mostly fine with me. It's fine. Yes, I think it. you can have a world with no rules that just exists on pure whimsy. That's fine. You can also have a world with very structured rules. Mm-hmm. That's also fine. Where a book will often fail, a work of fantasy will often fail, is if it lands somewhere in between. So it feels like it has rules, but then it violates those mm-hmm. rules, things like that. This book, I think, pretty squarely positions itself, at least in this first book in the series, as, as mm-hmm. just one darn thing after another and there doesn't need to be a lot of coherence to it right and and that is fine i will say as someone who had never read the series who just knew the mgm movie and then returned to oz and things that you told me about the series i liked the book it was good it it, it reminded me of like a it wasn't as grim as a grim grim's fairy tale but it reminded me of a kind of a classic fairy tale like you said Mm -hmm. at the top of this podcast just (laughs) You go and you do a thing. There's a challenge. Oftentimes there's three challenges. You know, challenges will come in three. You got to do this and this and this. And mm-hmm. then you get to the next stage of your adventure. Right. And then you got to do this and this and this. And then the witch is going to send three villains. And mm-hmm. you'll defeat the three villains. And uh, so it felt good. I think personal context is inescapable. Whatever this book's intrinsic qualities, I have seen the MGM film a million times. I did grow up with it. It was for, that, I'd say, maybe the first third of this book a little hard to get it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm not proud of that fact, but it's just a fact. And so by comparison, this book felt stripped down and maybe sure. a little maybe a little austere, a little bit humorless. Uh, you meet the cowardly lion and the, the scarecrow and the tin man. Instead of being bubbling with cheerful personality and songs, they're like, this is my thing. I will now state my thing. And then they go through the book like, I will now restate my thing and I will state my thing too. And I'll state my thing. Well, now we're in another situation where we've got uh-huh. to do this thing. Well, I can't do this thing because I don't have any brains. Well, I can't do it because I don't have a heart. Well, yep. I'll be affected this way because I have no courage. courage. And as as I went, I began to see A, B, I was always objective enough to be able to stand outside and sort of see, well, okay, this would be working a little bit better if I wasn't bringing false expectations to it. But as, as I went, I was able more to just leave those false expectations behind and appreciate it for what it was. Get some of the dry humor, I think, of that fairy tale format of, in particular, the three, her three friends. It's very always, understated Always humor. sort of understatedly bringing their thing. It's very tongue-in-cheek, though. Yeah. I, yeah, because I understand what you're saying. It's just, it's not exuberant. Right. I mean, it's got good fairy tale stuff. I, I think if I read another book, I'd probably appreciate it. Just fine, because anytime mm-hmm. it deviated from what I was aware of, what I already knew from the movies, I was more excited about it, and I was able to just leave any preconception behind, and those things were fun. So after they killed the Wicked Witch, there's still a third of this book or something to go, and that's that stuff right. was all pretty fun. Uh-huh. Their dealing with the wizard himself was fun. Yeah, it's a good book. I could imagine reading this to my girls or giving it to them when they're the right age and them really digging it. It's a good story. There's not a ton of meat on the bone you know, in terms no. of like anything to sort of come away with or like you know chew on or i think that the main thing it leaves you to chew on is how often do you lament a quality that you actually have and display yes. like if there's one message of the book is that mm-hmm. i think yeah that's the fun yes that's, that's the fun of the book and that was well done yeah i like that yeah and I, I think that that the funniest line might have been Oh my goodness, I wish I could remember it. I was listening to it, so I don't have a printed copy in front of me. Otherwise, I would have marked it. But is it the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Tin Woodsman saying, well, if I had a heart, I wouldn't have to be so careful not to step on bugs because I would know I'd have a heart. But since I don't have a heart, I have to really watch out for weaker creatures. Mm -hmm. But one day... Help you know. One day I won't have to be so careful. Yes, that I, that's pretty funny. There's some stuff like that. The bomb really nails. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really like that stuff. I mean, I think I was again. I was stuck sort of with the, my old impressions of the sort of broader way that the 
movie hits that with the sort of cheeky, how can you talk if you don't have any brains? Well, plenty of people talk without brains all right. the time. You know, that, <laughs> that sort of. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's it felt like a relatively subtler flavor, which is yeah. not anything to be despised. It was just different. Just different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I do need to go back and watch Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Maybe we'll just, we we'll probably just do it for sanity. At we, the movies, we, should, but, we probably should. Yeah. I'd probably enjoy it. All the more. And you know what? I do have to say, I think Baum would have loved it. I don't think he would have cared that it switched flavors and mm-hmm. that it changed events. I just don't think he cared. He felt very free to completely transform the plot of the book for the play that was successful. Right. He just was like, oh, yeah, baby, theater, music, we're doing this. Like, yeah, just use it as the raw material. Mm-hmm. He just got really excited about that. So I'm guessing he would have been a huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Swerving a little bit, I did, in terms of, Feminist considerations, it was actually quite refreshing that the little girl was just allowed to be a little girl. Yeah. And on on both sides of the equation, she didn't need to power up in a way that all children's literature is about flattering kids and telling them how much inner power they have. And it's just tiresome. Even insofar as you could find a way to agree with some part of that, it's tired. It's just boring at this point. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't need another story like that. But also, it didn't do... The reverse thing, like you said, where she didn't need to learn some lesson either. She just was a little girl, like behaving just about like a little girl would, you know, plucky enough, but not renowned for her pluck or renowned for her anything. She's just like going through the adventure, doing her best. Just kind of a good good fairy tale protagonist. Yeah, absolutely. It does, hey, why not draw a connection to uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim? Yeah, very similar. There is a similar quality, like just kind of going along, doing my thing. Didn't learn a moral lesson mm-hmm. exactly, even though the way that I acted was moral. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think Mrs. Frisbee herself, I feel a little bit more admiration for. Like, oh, yeah. She, she yeah, actually yeah, yeah, does yeah. have some real qualities of yeah, like, some right. real character and backbone. And it's not that Dorothy doesn't have those things, but it's just. It's Dorothy's not, being carried along. Yeah. It's not the point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I like that. It is interesting. That it is fascinating. What do I want to say? You can have a guy like Frank L. Baum or Al Frank Baum who is influenced by all this trash that his mother-in-law and wife brought into the marriage, mm-hmm. who is a something of a proto-feminist. And it is still impossible for people to escape their time, escape their place, and escape the patriarchal way that God built the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wizard of Oz is actually, to my mind, whether you're talking about this book, whether you're talking about the MGM, it is one of the prototypical feminine adventure stories in that the entire point is to be done with the adventure and go back home. <laughs> like in a way that's actually sort of demoralizing for me as a reader. Cause I'm like, who wants to go hang out with Auntie M? Like I said, somewhere else in this podcast, like you, you told us it was boring and Auntie M and depressing. and depressing and Auntie M like never smile. Like what's, but this, but this book just assumes without stopping to think about it that, well, of course a little girl wants to get back home, which is not, what always happens in like the Campbellian monomyth when the boy sets yeah. out on an adventure, his goal is to power up and to become an adventurer. And he will eventually find that he cannot go home again, even if he tries. But yeah. that's not actually what happens no. to little girls and prototypical girl adventures. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. There is the Oz book that I might remember the most fondly is the least typical. It's called Rinkatink in Oz. And it's one that Baum wrote for a different fantasy world, but then put into Oz. Mm -hmm. And it is a boy adventure story. (laughs) It's a boy. He has these special pearls, and he I think he fights the Gnome King or something, who's a mm, recurring villain. And it's great. Really fun. So he did do some boys adventure stuff, too. And obviously, there's stuff for the boys in this book. I mean, that's how I felt as a boy. Oh, yeah. You get all kinds of cool, fun adventures. Yeah, like 40 decapitated heads or something like that. Yeah, there's all kinds of, like, all her companions are basically, like, action heroes in their mm-hmm. own way. Really fun ways. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, there literally is a scene where the witch sends 40, I don't remember 40 what. wolves. Wolves, yeah. And the tin woodsman is like, this is my fight. Stand behind me. And as every wolf comes through the clearing, he, his axe flashes down until there's 40 headless bodies right. piled at their feet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, w- I really would have loved that as a boy. I loved the decapitation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My favorite parts in books were Gimli decapitating a couple orcs in the Two Towers book. And, of course, the classic Prince Caspian moment where Peter cuts off the guy's legs and then brings his sword around to wallop off his head, as C.S. Lewis writes. 
Um, <laughs> love a good decapitation in the children's literature. So. There's a lot in this one. <laughs> well done, Bob. There's the scarecrow catching the crows and wringing their necks. Yes. <laughs> and doing it 40 times. Yes. Man, yeah, it's actually surprisingly violent. You just don't expect it to be what it is. The lion gets to do some... The, the lion decapitates a spider monster. Yeah, that spider monster was cool. Yeah, it doesn't feel... <laughs> even reading the old Grimm's, you're struck by the violence. You're like, this violence is something, man. I wouldn't say that this book, feels, this book feels like, eh, it's just the kind of violence that belongs in a story like this. It actually doesn't particularly stand out, I don't think, any kid... It does. There's nothing gruesome. Yeah, it's just like, oh, there's it, wolves. It happens. Cut off their heads, whatever. Yep. That was it. Described at about the length that we already described it. I mean, you know, it's just... So, yeah, I'm trying to think what else... I mean, it is interesting that the Wicked Witch feels like such a minor part of the story. Yes, that is something that MGM changed and... For good reason. For good reason. In a movie, you understand. You want a main villain. Yeah, a villain that's superintending all of her peril the whole time and working against her. It it makes total sense. But yeah, it is interesting how this book feels much more fairy tale-ish, in part because that does not happen. Because Mm -hmm. they're just going on an adventure. And when you go on an adventure in an adventurous land... You're going to run into some crazy stuff. You're going to have right. to deal with it. it. We don't need a Sauron or somebody who's watching us all the time. Right. Like you said, you can see why the movie changed it, but it does lend a certain fairy tale quality. And I do like the section with the witch. She's a good bad guy. I am mm-hmm. I am disappointed in the book as I am in the movie that she is so easy to dispatch. Mm-hmm. I yes. always felt like that's a weakness of any yeah. version of The Wizard of Oz I've ever seen. Now, obviously, everybody loves the witch melting in the movie, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. It's too bad. It is nice in a sort of, again, n- not feminist way that, eh, you know, Dorothy would never think about killing anybody. And so we've got to contrive some way that she can kill the witch without at all meaning to, although maybe that's more of his lame pacifism that I know would maybe infect some of the other books. I don't know. I, understand it. <clears throat> I mean, he makes no apology for, his character's killing yeah. as needed. So it's one of the jokes of the book that the Tin Woodsman is, he steps on a beetle and he starts crying. Mm-hmm. He has to be oiled because he rested his jaw shut from his tears. But then as soon as they're attacked by wolves, he's like, oh, I'm just going to kill off 40 of these right. wolves. <laughs> Wait, I thought you didn't like to kill creatures. Huh, they're attacking us. So it's not really a consistent, in that sense, moral framework Mm-hmm. Va- bomb does as as the books go there's less and less of any kind of violence like that like no one people stop dying right as i recall so bomb like tones that down pulls it out so maybe he is a pacifist i don't know but i oh i did want to say i really like and think i'm sorry i don't want to just turn this into a comparison to the movie but it's obviously an easy comparison to make yeah. i really like the conception of the actual wizard and the actual visits to the wizard the fact that all of our four friends have their own individual wizard encounters, yep. and he takes a different form. Yeah, all, like all of which, too. spoiler alert, has is sort of deflated in the same way as in the movie. You know, you find out he's just a dude doing some sort of visual trickery or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it is just in a fairy tale way. It's nice they have to wait a day, and then they go, each one gets an audience, and then the wizard appears as a big floating head like he does in the movie. Then he appears as a beautiful woman. Then he appears as, what, a flame or something like that? Uh, he, he appears as a terrible beast and then as a ball of fire. Right. And that's some nice wizardy. Yeah, I like the fact that everyone stuff. gets, like, nailed into <laughs> emerald glasses. They must wear emerald or green-colored glasses when they're in. The Emerald City yeah, because everything is green because there. Because everything is <laughs> green there. Yeah, there's a bunch of funny stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's good stuff. I, I think if the, if really the only thing that I couldn't help but be disappointed by when comparing it to the movie was the introduction of each of her three companions. Mm. Like those guys are so vibrant and fun in the movie that it was just hard to accept that the book was doing something else. But everything else, including the witch, including the wizard, including the Emerald City, was all pretty fun. And I was able to just put the movie aside mm-hmm. e- in an easier way. And once you got going, the characters as conceived by bomb did have lots of charm so yeah what else do you want to say about wizard of oz not a lot just back to the episodic nature and it's i think how much kids will enjoy it as a kid you feel like you get you just process things a little i think slower is the word the word Mm -hmm. 
but it, each episode feels like a bigger thing than it actually is. You listen to this as an adult, you're like, well, it took about a minute to be done with that new section right. of adventure. But as a kid, it's going to stick in your mind. So you got this China town. <laughs> they visit a town made of China. Mm-hmm. Every person in it is made of China and is in danger of breaking if they get scared or fall over. That's a pretty wonderful little yeah. invention. You don't spend much time there. But if you were a kid reading it, it would totally, it would just stick with you mm-hmm. as a place that you were. Long enough to, you spend enough time there to knock over a China a church? church. Yeah. <laughs> which, which felt somehow a little bit pointed, maybe. I don't maybe. know. Just of, of all the things you could break. Ah, have, uh, make a, have them break a church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's remarkable how quickly kids can invest in an emotional reality. You watch Star Wars A New Hope, people like to dunk on it now because what? You just met Obi-Wan like less than 12 hours ago and he's gone for your aunt and uncle died and you were a little bit sad, but now you're excited to go on an adventure and now Obi-Wan's dead. Oh no. (laughs) And now you're like, I got him. I got him. And you're happy. It's like, man, you are the bipolar Luke Skywalker. Uh But it's like from a kid's perspective, the movie feels like an epic that spent all the time that it needed, like because they invest so heavily so quickly and they feel the passage of time slower, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, my daughter, we, we just recorded a podcast for Sanity at the Movies on King Kong, the original, and my daughter walked in for a couple seconds and happened to be very scared by King Kong menacing Fay Ray, but it did not take her any time to <laughs> invest in that. It was mm-hmm. like she was... Right. She walked into the room, she looked at the screen, and then suddenly her friend, the woman, was being menaced by a giant, terrifying monkey, and that was all she needed. And I don't know, maybe we traumatized her for life. It's entirely possible that that mm-hmm. image will stick with her. But she didn't need much. She was only in the room for 15 seconds. And so I think, yeah, like the original Hobbit book, it's remarkable how quick some of those episodes are. They at least take a chapter each right. per episode, mm-hmm. but it is kind of short and episodic when you po- approach it as an adult, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas it feels like such a languorous journey actually yeah. as an, as a kid. I think there also is something to be said for reading these books aloud a chapter at a time so that they live in your child's imagination for 24 hours before they go to get the next little chunk of the book. Anything else? I don't think so. I think I'll probably go back and take a peek at some of the other... I have the full set of Bomb Oz books. A friend gave it to us as a gift in anticipation of our little twins being ready for them someday. So I'll take a peek at those. And But I am I'm quite curious now mm-hmm. to just dip into one of the other ones by a different author. It's interesting because one of your twins is a theof- theosophist and one of your twins is a free thinker. So <laughs> Yeah, and they're both feminists. And they're both feminists. Yeah. And all of this before reaching the age of... One? Yeah, before reaching the age of seven months even. Yeah, so they are going to be prime readers for right. the Oz series. Yeah, they're going to be true Oz heads. They're, they're going to go heads. to the Oz Fest in, I don't remember where. There's more than one. They'll watch that HBO show, Oz, probably. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, so I'd recommend that you read this. I didn't get as much out of it as an adult as I did. No, I didn't get nearly as much out of it as, as an adult as I did The Rats of Nim. no. No, no, no. is a legitimately good book. This was more for me, just like, oh, that was fun, and I'm glad to have read it. And, sure. and I don't know how many other Oz books. I'd read. recommend trying at least one or two more. I may well do that. They're very easy and short, for one thing. They are that. How many China people out of, no, I shouldn't say that. How many <laughs> flying monkeys good save. out of 40 do you give to the Wizard of Oz? Oh, Wow, 36? I think that's about right. I'd give it 40 as, a, as an artifact in and of itself. I'd give yeah. it about 30 for my current enjoyment yeah, level yeah, yeah, and yeah. maybe split the difference for a 35 sure. rating. Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum. Hey, is it? I saw a L. Frank Baum TV biopic where he got the idea for the name from looking at a one of those library... What do you even call it? It's like cards. I want to say the Dewey Decimal System, but it's not the Dewey Decimal System. It's mm-hmm. like all from A to C. One of the from, placards on a bookshelf, the right. side of a bookshelf or something. And then this placard said from Oz to, for, for, or from. Did it say, it didn't say from O to Z? Yeah, maybe it did. Maybe that's what it was. I read something like that on Wikipedia. That's all that I remember. 
There you go. Yeah. That's all so, that I remember from the TV movie. I, I think at least that's Bomb's story. Something like that is Bomb's story. I, I was reading something about how he picked all these things from his own life and just sort of, like you do as an artist, direct inspiration. This will become that. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just looked up this movie and it's got John Ritter of Three's Company playing the part of L. Frank Baum in The Dreamer of Oz, the L. Frank Baum movie from 1990. Mm. I'm trying to see if it's got any other celebrities. It does not. If you like, well, here, let's re- let me recommend something totally extraneous. Yeah. Uh, there's a Gene Wolfe story that I like a lot. We've talked about Gene Wolfe before. Mm. And called the Eye Flash Miracles, and it is an original story, but it uses Oz characters too. It's pretty cool. It's pretty fun, and like a lot of Wolf, it's weird, but I don't think it's inappropriate. So if you like strange and interesting sci-fi fantasy stuff, you should read the short story, the long short story, the Eye Flash Miracles by Gene Wolfe. And if you like Oz, then it's a bonus. There you go, the bonus of Oz. Okay, well, folks, uh, what are we doing next? People are reading along. I th- well, I said earlier we were doing Marvelous Misadventures of Sebastian, but after we get off, I'm going to suggest that we move that, potentially. So if we're not doing that, I don't know. We could do Five Children and It by Edith Nesbitt. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that's more of a classic. And I don't know what else to say. Where's mm. my list? I'd have to find my list. Sorry. I found your list. So. Oh, Wizard of Oz, Five Children of It. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we could do the Weird Stone of Brisson Gaiman. Everyone's waiting for us to do that. One. Obviously, people have been, even before we were doing the series, beating people down were, the doors. People were like, when are you going to do the Weird Stone of Brissingham? Yeah, let's do Five Children in It. To be honest, I already started reading and listening to that one. So oh, I hey. think that would be a good one to do. That works. And probably, folks, if we just simply follow the order that we have right now, folks, maybe we'll change it up a little bit, but it'll be Five Children in It, Marvelous Misadventures of Sebastian by Lloyd Alexander, Hexwood by Diana Wood-Jones, Wind in the Willow by whatever Graham, Kenneth Graham, mm-hmm. Half Magic by, I forget his Edward last name, Eager. Iger, Redwall by Brian Jake, and the I think it's actually how you say his name, The Weird Stone of oh. Brissingham by Alan? Garner. I think Alan Garner. And uh, Last Unicorn by Peter Beagle. Alrighty. And yeah, that sounds great. Okay, well, thank you for listening, folks. And until next time, Ben's been caught completely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm caught with movie quotes instead of book quotes. Follow the yellow ground, follow the yellow ground. Yeah, we'll just go with the movie quote. There's no place like home, there's no place like home.